number 276. Okay, so going some distance down the list, 276. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that's Craig Brewer, who did, oh, I mean, most recently hell. had a hit with Dolomite Is My Name. Yeah, uh, he... That, what the hell is happening with this show? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> It, it really is random. We are putting the random in in random. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, he broke through with Hustle and Flow. He did a few things after that, but he kind of lost his way. And then, uh, it, as I say, Dolomite is my name, brought him back to prominence. I, whatever else we do, I would love to do Dolomite is my name. Uh, I've been wanting to see that for a I, I watch that again any day of the week. It's so much fun. As far as the other thing... Uh, Hustle and Flow, I think, was the other one that you did. Yeah, I think that would be the obvious comparison point. If only because I'm, I'm kind of curious about, given the state we're in, how an incredibly acclaimed 2005 film about a black pimp made by a white guy plays now. Simpson and welcome to Directors Uncut. If this is your first episode, we put filmmakers from all corners of the globe on a huge list that covers everything from Hong Kong mavericks to British social realist icons. Then we turn it into a lottery of directors, and by using a random number generator, we pick a name out of the hat, and whatever name comes out, myself and some guest hosts discuss them and their work through two films. Uh, this episode is a blast from the Patreon archive, which means there's a bit at the end of the show where I'm joined by some extra guests to talk about new films, but before any of that, we have a director to talk about. And on this episode, watch this seamless segue. On this week's episode, I am joined by... Graham Williamson. And Andrew Young. Yes, it's following a series of completely unpredictable directors with another completely unpredictable director. We've had uh, John Waters, Alexandra Aja, uh, Robert Hamer. And I think this is our first sort of uh, flirtation with the mainstream, really, isn't it? Yeah, I'd go for that. It's certainly an American director who has directed movies that you don't have to be a terrible scuzz bucket to enjoy, like John Waters is. Or somebody who likes movies just because they make them seem smarter than they actually are. Those people do exist. They are out there. And I'm one of them. Still, let's let's <laughs> press on. Well, I wasn't throwing you under the bus quite like that. But, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like half of my entire reason for being on this show is Graham mentioned it. I went, but I know a film he's done. <laughs> yes. It's quite, I mean, that's a perfect segue that Andrew's just offered up there. Exposure with the director. The director that I haven't mentioned, by the way, is Craig Brewer. Well, obviously, with this being the most mainstream director we've covered, my exposure with him is nothing whatsoever. (laughs) Ah, Graham. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's true, literally not a thing. You could not have stereotyped me better, because, yeah, I haven't seen a single thing he's done. I wasn't really stereotyping you, but, you know. I know, you're... but I recognise when I'm walking into this. <laughs> okay, so I've seen a few of his films. I don't know what Andrew's exposure is like. Um... Yes, I've, I've not seen anything that made his Dolomite is my name has been on my like to watch list for quite a long time now. So neither of you watched Coming to America, the sequel to Coming to America. That's a title that does not work in an audio format, isn't it? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> it's almost like they never thought about it and rushed it out. <laughs> oh no, sorry, that's exactly what happened because it is dreadful. But how could you rush out a sequel to a film that came out in 1998? Like, how much longer could you take? It wasn't that late, was it? I thought it was the 80s, Kuno America. Yeah. And Graham, you you say that like a man who has not been told, right, you have two months to complete this essay, and then remembered that about <laughs> the day before it's due in. Yeah, this does have that feeling about it. Because, right... Coming to America 2, or whatever you want to call it, it basically feels like a sitcom to a... Like it's a movie spin-off of a sitcom, of a sitcom that doesn't exist. I've wrapped myself in a conundrum there. Okay, it's, it's like the holiday on the buses of Craig Brewer's career then. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you get all of those elements coming together for My Name is Dolomite, and you think, well, Eddie Murphy's back, and then he goes and does... I don't know, Dinner with the Flumps or whatever they were called. I didn't follow his, his late career sort of nosedive. I think the main thing I remember from Eddie Murphy's late career is when he did a film that was basically like a Hollywood version of the Numbskulls, um, where they were all little Eddie Murphys living inside a big Eddie Murphy head. And to promote it, they actually created a giant Eddie Murphy head and drove it around America, terrorising innocent civilians. I'm, I'm glad you said that, Greg. I often think that was just a nightmare that I had one time. <laughs> oh, man, that's that, that was real. <laughs> that happened, yeah. Because yeah, he did all sorts of rubbish, didn't he? He, he made a... Oh, I can't even remember. Let's just move past this, because it's open in a part of my memory, which is just do not touch. <laughs> oh, I mean, I so wish we could, but I feel duty-bound to just mention the film Norbit. Remember that one where Eddie Murphy plays Eddie Murphy and also his own wife, who, who get, yeah, get which... this, listeners, is overweight. <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's, that's, that's the joke. That's the joke. Norbit was also, I think, the uh, it was the precursor to Suicide Squad in terms of jokes about something absolutely bizarre, getting a technical Oscar. Well, it was like a... Almost killed Eddie Murphy's career, didn't it? Because he got like an Oscar nomination, and then in the same year he did that, and then all the casting directors and directors and writers and thought, "Hang on a minute, this Eddie Murphy guy. Okay, let's let's move on from him, maybe." Nobody wanted the headline to say Eddie Murphy wins Oscar, and for people to go, "Norbit won an Oscar." What? <laughs> probably costume, though, didn't it? It probably I did win it, one. I think it did get a makeup nod, which, you know, fair enough. I'm sure technically it's very well accomplished in that department. But we'll get more Eddie Murphy talk out of the way a little bit later on with our second movie we were talking about. So with Craig Brewer, we'll start off with his earlier movie, the one which I wouldn't say it was his breakout because it's breakout in a much more indie sensibility. 
as mm. in the indie community knew he was a thing off the back of this one. Mm. But uh, Hustle and Flow. Yeah, my memory of this is that it was his breakout and then he did a few films after that that... What, what's the opposite of breakout? Like, reconstructed him back in? Yeah, so uh, wore himself back in know. like the cast of Amatillado. <laughs> yes, superb reference. Yes, that's it. But it's interesting that we picked uh, this movie that we're doing, Hustle and Floor first, and My Name is Dolomite, because effectively they are the same movie, just very, very different interpretations of the same sort of story. I, yeah, I smiled when I realised that both of them have a sequence about like breaking down the mechanics of swearing. Like there is a scene in Hustle and Flow where uh, somebody complains about DJ, the central character played by Thames Howard, using the word bitch in his raps too often. And he explains that when he says bitches, he doesn't mean whores. Most of the whores he knows aren't bitches. <laughs> But let's, let's loop around a little bit. Uh, Hustle and Flow is about Terence or names. Bad Terence names, Howard, literally three seconds ago, Bob. <laughs> this is a new law for you. War Machine number one. Okay. Yes. This is a yeah. movie in which War Machine number one is... He's a scuzzball, let's be honest. He's a pimp in the Deep South, and he doesn't particularly like being a pimp in the Deep South because there's no glory in it. One day he goes to a church and here's some rather magnificent music very sort of uh what's the term they use it's not choir it's deep south sort of uh, uh, gospel gospel choir yeah yeah and it sort of opens his eyes to what he could do with his life and from that he discovers something which he calls his mode which sets him on a career path which turns him into a, a burgeoning rap star in the deep south or the atlanta scene if you know your hip-hop uh, yeah, basically. It's quite a simple setup for the whole thing. It is, yeah. I think until you mentioned that, until you put it in that way, I hadn't really thought about the the sort of weird nuance of him going to church and becoming inspired to turn his life around, but only in as much as he liked the music. He didn't, like, find religion or anything. Oh, no, no. That's pretty funny, I think. I mean, you don't go to church and then... Find, discover yourself by creating really bassy, crunky music that talks about bitches and hoes. I mean, that's, I think you're doing life wrong if you, that's your career path. I would genuinely like to see a Church of England remake of this where someone like goes in and hears somebody finger picking their way through walking in a garden and thinks, yes, that's it, the power of music. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, a Biopic of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's an interesting movie, isn't it? Because it's quite dirty and well, just dirty. It's a very dirty movie. Seedy, I would say. Yeah, I, mean, I would say both seedy and dirty because especially DJ's house is just an absolute tip. <laughs> yeah, that is true. It is, and and DJ is a bit of a shit as well, isn't he? He is, and I was constantly on a knife edge as to which way the movie would flip to him. I know it wants us to invest in him, but it kept me wondering how much, right up until the end, in a lot of ways. It never really lands on one side, does it? Because he does some pretty awful stuff. Mm. But at the same time, that bass line, man, that bass line. It's out of the bass line, it's true, yeah. Yeah. It's also important to remember... 
that Buffy's just, he's also really rubbish as a pimp, isn't he? Like, he's just constantly getting yelled at by his, by his workers and kind of, he's basically like the henpecked middle manager. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he has like one regular girl who is played by Tavern Manning from Orange is the New Black, uh, who of course has hip hop movie experience from being in Eight Mile. Uh, and oh, wait. Oh, no. Oh. Well, I, I say hip hop. I'm using the term quite loosely. No, you just reminded me that Eminem exists and I live in a blissful reality where he doesn't <laughs> for most of the time. That, just... that blissful reality is called the current decade. Yeah, it's not a great level hey, of bliss. How admit, dare but... you disrespect the creator of the Venom rap like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about that too. <laughs> oh. I, I actually saw the trailer for the second Venom movie today and all I had in my head was that episode of Cinema Eclectica where Andrew just sort of reads out Venom, Venom, Venom gonna get him. <laughs> the <laughs> I'll have you know he's a lyrical master. Mm. <laughs> he really opened up the world of hip-hop to your English teacher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, where were we? Kind of scuzzy. Kind of scuzzy. Kind of a, a crap pimp. Uh, not good at pimping, we've, we've decided. Uh, no, he's got a, a Chevy which has got a replacement door and he lives in a house which... Well, yeah, it's a house, technically. <laughs> yeah, yes. it, it has a roof at time of writing. And just about four walls. <laughs> yeah, but it is depicting something real, isn't it? You know, the Deep South was incredibly, probably, yeah, it still is. Last time I checked. Yeah. <laughs> incredibly poor. So mm-hmm. it's depicting like a real life there, rather than sort of a, anything heightened. It's very much got its feet set on the ground. I think it is, although part of the reason why I thought Hustle and Flow would make an interesting film to pull out is that I remember when it was released, it got a lot of acclaim. It got an Oscar nomination for Terence Howard. It got an Oscar. It actually won Best Original Song for It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp, which prompted the show's host, John Stewart, to quip. So that's 3-6 Mafia 1, Martin Scorsese, nil. Uh, oh no! It's 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 really sad when the Oscars try to be funny, isn't it? <laughs> I thought that was funny, but anyway, that's Aww. not the point. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the thing is, I remember very little discourse about the thing that I think would have a lot of discourse around it now, which is that Craig Brewer is a white dude. Yeah, I mean that was a normal thing then, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, but not. That long ago when, like, sort of uh, late 80s, 90s, a lot of it, there was a lot of uh, prominent black directors coming up, like uh, John Singleton, Spike Lee. This is the Singleton. sort of film that they Singleton would have made. Singleton produces you know. this. Singleton oh, is he? one of the producers on this, yeah. yeah. It does have that sort of boys in the hood sort of feel about it. Yeah. And I think he mostly plays fair. I didn't get a sense that he was kind of fetishizing the poverty or depicting it as authentic in some way, which you often get with a certain class type of sort of middle class white guy rap fan. I don't think there's anything of that in the movie. No, but it does have something which is in every 1990s crime movie. Oh, In every single 1990s crime movie, I challenge you to find one where it's not true. A scene in a strip club. <laughs> yes, that it's is incredible. All true. of them. 
Yeah. I also, I believe, and this is me half remembering something I think I read, that Craig Brewer mm. did also grow up kind of in the deep south and was quite poor growing up. So I think a lot of it as well as taken from his own experience, which I guess maybe yeah. helps mitigate things a bit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, I think it, it doesn't quite get away scot-free. It's got that sort of scene where, uh, I forget her name, is Shug, the Taraji Henson character, um, where she's being asked to sing the hook of It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp. And they're constantly like goading her on to, no, no, sing it, sing, give it more, sing it like you mean it. And you think, eh, maybe she doesn't think it is that hard out here for a pimp in the grand scheme of things. Maybe she can think of other people who have it slightly harder. But again, I think it gets away with that because Henson plays the shit out of that scene. It's a weird thing in that scene as well. It's because they use like a lot of Southern American slang and. Hmm. I don't know what the hell he's referring to. So she, I don't know what the word he uses is. Yeah. But he doesn't say, sing it like you mean it. It's, it's something else entirely. Yeah. And it just I... made me, at that point, it made me think of all those uh, sort of guy, well, all those Cockney gangster movies that are put out in America with subtitles. I think Attack the Block was too. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah, which is crazy because Americans who saw Attack the Block really enjoyed it. And to them, it it like didn't matter that the slang was totally unfamiliar to them because it was like clockwork orange or something. They just enjoyed having their vocabulary expanded. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Performance-wise, what did we all think? Because I mentioned Henson briefly there. A DJ, um, mm. Trevor Howard, War Machine 1. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know whether it was Oscar nomination worthy because the accent, you know, it's kind of, it doesn't feel natural, you know. Right, yeah. It doesn't feel like he's delivering it and living that life. It feels like he's sort of pretending. It, it feels very acted. Does that make sense? No, that does make sense, absolutely, yeah. And I couldn't really get behind his performance for a lot of it until it kind of like sank in. It's kind of like um, Knives Out, where mm. uh, Craig... Di- no, then he did it again there, Craig David. That's the wrong <laughs> Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The Craig who's in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Craig <laughs> McLaughlin think? off Neighbours, yes. C- Craig McLaughlin off Neighbours, yeah. Well, he's doing the sort of uh, Kentucky mm. sort of gentleman accent, and you think, it's very alienating when he first does it, but after a while you just sort of forget and you just assume that's who he is. But I don't think uh, Trevor Howard does it quite as well as it's that. It's Terence Howard, by the way. Trevor Howard is a very genteel 40s British character actor who would I don't be think amazing he in a remake of this. Don't get me wrong. I don't think he's very good at Deep South accents either. So, <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> I'm bad with names, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't have specifically that objection. I think one of the things that I always have with Terence Howard is that He's always cast in really tough roles, but he is not, I think, a particularly intimidating guy. And I was prepared to have this problem again, but as we observed, DJ is just a, a bad pimp. He's not good at pimping. He is. He's just. He's a loser, isn't he? He is. Yeah. If they if they cut their losses halfway and got Don Cheadle in, he would have been a much better pimp. Well, he is Captain America. No, he's not Captain America. Oh, hang on, hang on. Bloody hell, it he's Captain Planet. Fictional characters as well. <laughs> it's Captain Planet. I'm getting me captains mixed up now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. 
Yeah, I thought so. I think there's some wonderful performances around the side. Um, like I say, I think Henson is absolutely great in this. And it's it's one of those things where it didn't really seem to take off for her until just a few years ago. She was always kind of on the fringes of stuff, having supporting roles in things like the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But Maybe it was hidden figures that really lifted her. But anyway, I think she's terrific in this. Yeah, no, she was in a TV series yeah. called Person of Interest, which I think gave her quite quite a big boost. That might be where the hole in my education is. Yes, a TV series. Yes. Or oh, as Graham calls them, the peasant entertainment. <laughs> yes. Well, there's all these people talking about in the line of duty, and I have no idea what the hell it is. I'm so confused. Right. Give me about 12 hours of whiteboard and lots of red string, and I'll explain it to you. Mother of God. That's a thing they say on the show. Then, see, okay. see, Graham. I've not misjudged Graham. He's clearly a fan. <laughs> uh, one thing I liked about this, though, it's what I like about a lot of movies that don't sort of tie themselves to a specific type of music. It's when they're actually crafting the music yes. and building it up. There's other movies where they did it. Um, and I think, why am I watching a movie in which they're putting together this well-known pop song? I could just be listening to that podcast that I don't like, Pop Exploder, I think it was called. <laughs> yeah. Whereas it takes a bit more creative liberty when it's not specifically tying itself to a specific piece of music from a specific person, you know. Mm. Creative freedom, a bit more liberty in the in the process, I think. Yeah, I have talked about this quite, quite often on pop screen, but there is generally no worse scene in a biopic of a musician than when, you know, you have Brian Wilson sat down by the piano going, oh, God only knows what I'm going to write my next song about. And, you know, fortunately, as you say, this is never a problem in a fictional musician film. That's why I like uh, Spinal Tap as well, because... They kind of satirise that pretty neatly too. Yes, yeah. Many of DJ's songs are in fact taking a highly sophisticated look at the idea of sex and putting it on a farm. (laughs) Okay. But uh, generally, what are our feelings on this? I think, I mean, two things I will say generally. It looks gorgeous. Uh, I checked the cinematographer, it's Amy Vincent. It really does look absolutely fantastic. Um, And the other thing I'll say, it's about 15 minutes too long. Where were those 15 minutes, though? It drags it out a bit. It's a good question. Yeah, I I thought the whole subplot with Ludacris' character is... It's not hugely important. I guess it gets DJ to where he is at the end of the movie, but... I didn't really invest in that character as much as I'd invested in the ones that felt more organic to the environment. I mean, that's fair. I mean, that character is... I don't know whether there's a satire in saying that, you know, uh, small-town rappers come good are kind of douches. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether there's much weight in actually talking about that as a satire. It's not up there on the ranking of satire topics in... The grand scheme I, of cinema history. I also have to admit, it wasn't until the film itself had finished that I realised, oh wait, they got Ludacris to play the rapper because he is a rapper. Not just, oh, it's the, the guy from the Fast yeah. and Furious films. <laughs> yes. Who has a notorious reputation for being a bit of a wrong-in. But yeah, and hard to work with. So, you know, how they got him to play that role, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's the snake eating its own tail a little bit there. 
at the risk of turning this into pop screen, of course, there is another great musician cameo in it with uh, the late, great Isaac Hayes. Yeah, it was weird seeing him. I did not expect that to happen. Me neither. But he's great. Yeah. It's sort of I've like got... a, a father figure in there. I have to I have to admit if I'd have known this would have had as many musician cameos as it does, I would have fenced it off for pop screen. It's perfect pop screen. Yeah, product. I was gonna say, Graham, thank you for bringing me on to your second movie podcast to talk about some movies about and or starring musicians, as opposed to my appearances yes. on pop screen where I've talked about films about and or starring musicians. It's really nice to get this level of well, variety in my podcasting. Not to be fair, though, Andrew, at least it's better than your last appearance, this movie. I mean, this or Battleship, yeah. it's a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> if I can say one thing about Hustle and Flow, it's that it's certainly not Battleship. <laughs> Still haven't seen that, and you're not going to convince me to, no matter how much you will on it in a podcast. Uh, yeah, I thought it wasn't worth pitching that episode to you. <laughs> but yeah, I really liked it, you know, it, it's that uh, zero to hero thing. I think it's particularly hard to do well. Mm. count on them in, uh, in a single hand really the ones that do it in a way which doesn't feel fast where you know because it ends in a north where or and now they're like global superstars yeah I, this it, it keeps it keeps it quite uh, uh, paired in a bit more humble more believable yeah. i mean the most success they get is basically some people recognizing him from the radio and that's it it doesn't sort of over embellish that side of it which i thought was tastefully done yes yeah, it kind of leaves it a bit ambiguous as to how big he's going to end up being. Mm-hmm. And it also has like a nice sentiment, you know, and everybody has the right to dream about something. Yeah. You know, I think, mm-hmm. that, I don't know what the word is, that, that specific thing, but that's the intent behind it, which I like. Yeah. And I think it just, it does a really good job of capturing just like that feeling of joy and excitement and just creating something that you're proud of. It's how I feel after every podcast, to be honest. Surely not after the Battleship one. <laughs> <laughs> yes but yeah that's the first movie from Craig Brewer uh, Hustle and Flow I think generally speaking we're all think it's a good movie worth watching worth seeking out yeah some reservations but I feel positively about it it's certainly not the movie I worried it would be yeah I mean I kind of wanted to well now I've watched it maybe a Black Snake Black Snake Morn would be a better pick you know a more interesting divergence point because of what it is, you know, Samuel L. Jackson tying Christina Ricci to a radiator. What's not a love about that? <laughs> Although I do think this one has some interesting points of comparison with the next one. Hey. Don't ever do that to me again, D. What? Maybe. No, I ain't some fucking cash machine where you can get shit for free. Hey, ain't like you was in there sweating no, bullets No, D, I gotta have shit. a say in what and I do. No, but for half a minute, I'm man. Damn. Say in what I do. Look, man, I was gonna I give you what you know. Every time you come, you got short, something for D. me. Do you got Fuck something you, for me? D. Here, take it. You hey, earned it. Fuck wrong with you, man. This is expensive, motherfucker. Ain't no free your ass. No. Don't you do this shit right now. No, bring your ass here, man. You ever walk away from me? We do what the fuck we gotta do, man. By any means. Ain't that right? We take care of our shit. You think I like this shit? You think I wanna spend the rest of my life pimping your pimple country ass? Well, not me. I fucking hate you. I hate this shit. Damn. 
you know what I do in the, in the back of them cars? Do you? Everybody's got something to do. Everybody's got something important going on in their life but me, D. And I want something. What, what do you want? I don't really know, but I just want something. What do you want? I don't know. Tell me what the fuck you want to do. Not this, D. Devil Times 5 is the fast-paced podcast in which comedians and horror experts dissect a different theme, franchise or subgenre each month before playing a round of horror's hardest quiz. Scary noises. So, for hot takes and piss takes, listen to Devil Times 5, the British horror podcast that knows how to have fun. Just to break up the flow of the episode a bit, uh, to break up the first movie and the second movie that we talk about with Craig Brewer. Um, we've been on a bit of a Patreon run as of late, um, and the next episode is a break of that, but I still want to jump in here to say uh, please get in touch with the show um, at directorsuncutpod at gmail.com. I've got all sorts of new directors coming up. Uh got Makoto Shinkai for one, Rene Lelou, um, Mark Duplass, uh, whew, all sorts of people, Don Siegel, all sorts of people. So if any of those names, um, yeah, you like their movies, you've got a particular favourite, you've got something that you'd like to add to the conversation, I would very much like to hear from you at that email I mentioned, directorsoncutpod at gmail.com. Um, also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Follow me on social media at underscore RJ Simpson. That's underscore RJ Simpson on Twitter. Or Directors Uncut Pod on Instagram. You can also search for me on Letterboxd if you are on Letterboxd. Uh, follow me. My name, Rob Simpson. You'll find me there. Yes. So I'll hand over to a segment we recorded previously where we've come up with the next director who will be on next Friday's episode. Okay, so um, we have to pick a director for an upcoming episode. So uh, we've got Ooh. 380 directors, which is, is far too many, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get to them, maybe. If, this, if people stop making films and, you know, because the one rule we have is once a helpful make it five films, they get put on the list. <laughs> so I think uh, we have to put Benson and Muirhead on there by that reckoning. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, with their new one. Um, so, what number will it be between 1 and 380? It is going to be number 153, who is 153. Oh, bugger, I don't like this. Uh, Alejandro Hodorowski. Uh, uh The Holy Mountain. Um, he was supposed to do June. He was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's surrealism, which is just kind of... <laughs> it's over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll listen to you talk about them, but I don't yeah. know if I'll watch the movies. <laughs> I, I've, se- I've seen El Topo, and that was like a hugely famous um, midnight movie. When I watched it, I thought, really? Because if I watched this at midnight, I'd, I'm not like somebody who falls asleep early, but that would knock me to sleep at midnight instead of watching that. We want this thing to be raw. Tell it like it is on the streets. Yeah, lots of pimps and hoes and cussing. And kung fu and karate. Brothers love all that kung fu and karate. Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a mother. You know what we should have? 
an all-girl kung fu army. Um, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I, I, I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it. An exorcism? Yeah, you know all that whole mother's in hell. Um, I, I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. <laughs> so so uh, now it leads us to the movie, which, well, it's kind of the main event of this episode. Yeah, I think that we, we don't religiously stick to the one big movie and one smaller one, but if we were putting Craig Brewer's films in those boxes, this is definitely the big one. It would have been before uh, Coming to America 2, but if you suggested that, I think this this show would be finished and we're not doing it anymore. <laughs> uh, my Name is Dolomite is the uh, one which we are doing. Uh, 2018, was it? 19, it... yeah. It, it feels like forever ago, but yes. 1942, was it? Because that's how time works now. <laughs> yes, it starred Trevor Howard. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a callback for you. Well, well played. Well played. But anyway, yes, uh, my name is Dolomite. Who wants to take a swing at the synopsis for this fella? Well, it's about Rudy Ray Moore, a cultural figure I was uh, sort of dimly aware of before this, but he broke through quite late in life as a, I think in Britain we would call it a blue comic, but that kind of lumps him in with Bernard Manning and Roy Chubby Brown, and I don't want to do that. He was someone who collected, like, dirty jokes and folk stories and assorted pieces of street ribaldry and was the first person to package them for an audience, both in his nightclub routines and in his uh, collection of very successful comedy albums. And then he decided to take it a bit further and become... I think probably the world's only nearly 50-year-old nightclub comedian turned kung fu movie star in the 1974 So Bad It's Good and Spins Round to Becoming So Bad It's Genius uh, <laughs> extraordinary cultural artefact that is Dolomite. Yes. Eddie Murphy as Dolomite and a Amazing cast from all over pop culture. How long did it take you to recognise Wesley Snipes? A while, because, you know, Wesley Snipes is Blade, Wesley Snipes is the action guy. Yes. And in this, he couldn't be more opposite. Yeah, because not only is Wesley Snipes Blade, he is the most serious Blade. Like, don't you dare tell him that Blade is, like, an inherently silly concept because he is playing this as the most serious role in all the world. And in this, he's just so amazingly hammy and over the top. Now you mention that, I suppose there is a certain commonality between Wesley Snipes taking the role of Blade extremely seriously and uh, Derville Martin, his character in this, taking literally everything amazingly seriously to very funny results. There's also everybody's favourite gay black friend from sitcoms. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Breakable Kimmy Schmidt, which was a bit of a... Hang on, is that... Yeah, it's Titus Andronicus. Yes. I know, we have Titus Andronicus and the Pontiac Bandit in the same film. 
I was really pleased to see Titus Burgess in this because I, although his character isn't like massively different to his norm, it does show him working that kind of style in a more realistic film. And I mean, there are any Lalu films that are more realistic than Unbreakable <laughs> Kimmy Schmidt, but still. Hmm. Yes. It's just an amazing cast, really, from like Pillar Post. Hmm. Yeah. And I'll just front load this. I, I, I want you to talk about it more because on Cinema Eclectica one year, I think I put it as my number five of the year. So if you want to look for that in the feed of this podcast, you can find it. But short version, I love it. Mm. So personally, I'm much more interested in what you two thought of it. Uh, right, that's probably going to be disappointing then because oh, no. I I watched this and kind of did a notebook looking around online. Was surprised to learn it's kind of generally considered yeah it's a, it's a pretty solid film pretty good we're all fans whereas i thought it was absolutely bloody incredible oh you dirty cheat <laughs> he baited me in there didn't i he? did i played a trick <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed it too and i think one of the things that's key to its success is that it was and this is one of the things that interested me when I was going in, was that it's written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who have done a lot of things, but they're probably most famous for writing the script for Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Oh, wow. Yes. That's I interesting. I, I was literally, I was watching this film, got to the end of it and thought, oh, I know what would be good. I'll make myself seem really smart by making a comparison between this and Ed Wood. And then looked at it, oh, it's the same writers. Well... Well, that explains a lot. What I think is interesting there is that this is obviously in a massively different kind of milieu from anything in Edward, um, and they capture that kind of down-at-heel 70s black show business very evocatively. But also it has a lot of the same virtues. I think Alexander and Kavazowski have this knack for getting to the business part of show business. They're very good at writing these things where people just desperately pitch ideas they have. Uh, like in the whole opening scene in this where Rudy Ray Moore is trying to persuade a radio DJ played by Snoop Dogg because yeah why not at this stage um, that <laughs> well, I think that's latest... actually that's a really canny bit of casting because Snoop yes. Dogg quite famously like credits Rudy Ray Moore as being one of the big inspirations for himself so having oh, him nice be the touch. DJ who says no I'm not going to play this that's, yeah. I think that's, that's a very neat little joke they've stuck in well, it goes, I suppose, to his legacy as being... Uh, they, they call him the godfather of rap in the end credits. I think quite a lot of people have had that. It's like the sort of the, the black equivalent of being called the fifth Beatle. But Rudy Ray Moore's status there is kind of interesting because I first heard of him when I read... Listeners, if you didn't know that I'm white, this might be about to tip you off. I first <laughs> heard about him when I read a book of sociology by Lewis Hyde, uh, which talked about the signifying monkey routine that he did and its significance in African-American culture and sort of fed it through to the signifying rapper, the very famous Schooly D track that had to be recalled because of its Led Zeppelin samples. So there is a definite lineage here. It's not something people just said to puff up Moore's reputation. He was hugely influential on early hip-hop. 
Hmm. That is a thing that's thrown around a lot, like uh, Godfather of Rap. I think about 100 people have that moniker at this point. But yeah. few actually earn it, you know. I think if, if you're a guy from New York and you've spoken on a record, someone has called you the Godfather of Rap. Hmm. Another uh, good bit of casting is, well, I don't know if there's like, any sort of like neat uh, process behind it. It's just something that I like to see. But Keegan-Michael Key is the writer, <sighs> is a lovely bit of casting. I loved him in this movie. I, I love his like horrible overwrought melodrama plays that he's very serious and like no we're tackling the real issues <laughs> what the, where, where it cuts to one of them there's like this woman on her knees on stage wailing I lost my baby to the needle it's like that that's it you just get exactly what the play was like from that brief snippet it's so good I think I love that and I love the scene where he's like with Eddie Murphy and they're hashing out the plot of Dolomite. And again, he's just at the typewriter going, and it's going to be gritty, and it's going to be real. And then Eddie Murphy just spins around and, and have karate! And an exorcism! <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Keegan-Michael Key is, I mean, obviously he got famous doing Key and Peele with Jordan Peele, and Jordan Peele now very rarely, if ever, uh, acts. He's a full-time writer-director now. Keegan-Michael Key, I think, has stayed in the game in an interesting way. I think there is now a kind of Keegan-Michael Key character type that he is particularly good at, and you can see that. And it is that kind of exasperated, ambitious, put-upon guy. You're basically... He's playing his version of Big Boy from the Outcast sketch on this. (laughs) Yes. If you haven't seen that sketch, by the way, do Google it. Not, and then you'll fall down a, a rabbit hole of just watching everything that Keen Peel did. Yes. It's a glorious little rabbit hole to fall down. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was fantastic. It's got so many great quotes in it. Um, I love the, the tramp that Rudy gets the Dolomite routine from, who says at one point, I ain't no hobo, I am a repository of Afro-American folklore. Which, as the author Lewis Hyde would say, is actually closer to the truth than you'd think. Yes. Um, one thing that I, I do want to bring up here is uh, it's not something which a lot of things uh, are like successful in pulling off, but it's inspirational in a way, which I think the true story of Rudy Ray Moore was. Yeah. Because if you watch this and it doesn't make you want to just get out there and do something, hmm. I think, you know, it's best to just give up, really. Because it got that, that fire in the belly of this movie is quite something. Yeah, and I think one of the pleasures of it is that, and one of the pleasures of Murphy's performance, which we really need to talk about, is that it allows Rudy Vemuer, who on stage is this kind of unstoppable force, it allows him to be really vulnerable. Oh yeah, there's a scene. Uh, I think it was in Alabama where mm. he meets Queen Bee. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is that. Very much at the pinnacle of just sort of broken, sad middle American. But also some of the body image stuff, like like we were saying, when Rudy Vemu was doing these films, which tend to feature a lot of karate, a lot of sex scenes, a lot of nudity, he was pushing 50. And it, it's quite nice the way they tackle the sort of push-pull with that, because of course the man wants to be a sex machine action hero, but he's also got really believable insecurities about what that actually entails. 
yeah, like, I mean, I think it's not one of really great bits, but he kind of suddenly realizes, oh, wait, I'm going to have to film the sex scene. Yes. Yeah. And oh, no, that's, it's the most awkward and uncomfortable thing I'm ever going to do. What am I going to do? And I just love their solution of, well, we'll make it a comedy scene. Exactly. Yeah, and not just a comedy scene, the most comedy scene. <laughs> As yes. suggested by, uh, is it Craig Robinson? Oh, yeah, Roman, yeah. Who's, who is just one of these actors who's got an amazing singing voice that really landed on the feet casting him. Yeah. So he sings the, one of the one things that the sort of black exploitation movies are very well known for is their amazing soul sort of title song. Yes. And this very much does it. And it's a very much, a funny title song as well. It's not played sort of as this cool sex hero mm. character. It's, oh, he does this and he does this. Oh, and another thing, he also has this and that and this and the other. <laughs> it's just really funnily worded song, but it's so soulful and amazingly put together. I think that was the, the one thing that I would change about Dolomite is my name that I really wish they could have brought uh, Charles Barkley or some other kind of neo-soul singer in to do a pastiche soul theme song for Dolomite is my name. Ah, He used to be a rapper, you know. Charles Barkley. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, wrong thing. Now I was about... Ah, forget. I'm really bad with names today. Ignore me, I'll go on McCarney. <laughs> you I, I might even be thinking about the wrong guy. Uh, let me just Google Charles Barkley because you. Oh, Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley, not the basketball player. Basketball player? Who the hell am I thinking of then? That's what got, got me confused a little. He, I was thinking. Is Charles of, Barkley uh, not the one who dunked on Godzilla? He was. He dunked him all the way. Niles Barkley, what's these co- that, that singer called? CeeLo uh, Green, yes. Yeah, that's who I was thinking of when you said it, because that's what people would not automatically go to. And yeah, he used to be a rapper before he yes. was. Yes, he was that, in Goody guy. Mob. Yeah. Yeah. The guy I'm we- thinking of, though, oh man, he definitely existed. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we should, like I say, we should talk about Eddie Murphy because this was his big comeback after not just that he, he did terrible movies for several years, which we have mentioned, but he actually seemed to take a break before this and just sort of sit down and think, what what am I doing here? What? He apparently, uh, he was sick of every film he was starring in getting all of the Razzies. Yeah. I think he must hold a record or something for Razzie wins. Uh, so he did that thing, which I, uh, Chinese actor like Yun Biao, said, I'm not doing movies until unless the script is good. So mm. he did the same thing. He went away and he wasn't going to do a comeback movie until there was a script which he felt was going to test him and challenge him. And I think it, it does. It's probably one, it's probably, it is his best performance for my money. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yeah, because yeah. he's just, he's absolutely electric in this film, isn't he? Yeah. But he's also so real, you know. I I do actually some of Eddie Murphy's older comedy performances I do greatly like. I think you know even as late as something like Bowfinger. I think his perform his dual performance in Bowfinger is absolutely fantastic. But it's operating in a very big cartoon register. And if you ever found yourself thinking, "Is that all Eddie Murphy can do?" You should watch this because that is absolutely not what he's doing here. Yeah. Well, mm. I think. Probably the biggest testament to Eddie Murphy's acting ability in this film that I can say is that there is a scene where he's kind of used his own money to just put a showing of Dolomite on at a local cinema. 
and it's kind of waiting to see if anyone shows up. And I was generally sat there going, God, I really hope that Dolomite, the massively successful black exploitation film, you know, has people come see it. Because what if they don't? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And it creates like a lovely moment as well where, he, he, spoilers, but I think you have to, to bring up this scene. But it's, yeah, it's a huge success. There's like, they got to put on free screenings. The foyer is rammed with people. And Eddie Murphy, you can see it's kind of like a career renaissance sort of moment. You can see that sparkle in his eye. Where you can see the parallels between mm-hmm. this sort of blow out of the blue uh, success of Rudy Ramuit and his sort of return. Yeah. Where he says, these people are going to be waiting here all night long. I've seen the movie enough. I'm going to stay here with my people. And it's just such a beautiful moment for him as an actor. He really relishes it, I think. Yeah. Definitely. I think the the thread we've left unpulled then is the reason why we're here, which is what what do we think Brewer is bringing to the table here? I don't know, really, because it's not a movie with an awful lot of directorial flourish, is it? I don't know. I think I would say he's got a similar sense of like time and place that you can see in Hustle and Flow. Hustle and Flow could not be said anywhere else but Memphis, and this similarly is just absolutely linked to a time and a place. I think it's got that. I think it's probably a lot of his direction as well. Being able to blend kind of the more comedic with the more poignant moments, especially because I think if you compare it to Hustle and Flow, it seems like it's something that Brewer has kind of honed a bit over his career. Like Hustle and Flow, it does feel a bit sometimes like it's, oh, we're going from comedy scene and suddenly like staff to serious scene, staff back to comedy scene. Whereas Dolomite is my name, definitely it's a lot more all just mixed in together. Mm. And I think even though it's a slightly longer film, I didn't have the pacing issue with it that I did with Hustle and Flow. I think part of the joy of Dolomite is my name is that it has this really weird structure where it spends half of the movie being about a man struggling to achieve his dream of being a top comedian and then half of the movie on a man struggling to achieve his other dream that he didn't mention about being an action movie star, which is, I mean, it's a kind of ridiculous structure, but it's a ridiculous story, so it works. Yeah, yeah, you say it like that, it shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah. I mean, there's other examples of this sort of thing which... uh... Really, really bad, you know, where it effectively is a making of, but uh, acted and staged one. Yeah. Like uh, Hitchcock, I remember from a few years ago with Anthony Hopkins, which is kind of like the counter to this. It's nodding its cap a little bit too much mm. to the source material rather than letting it be its own thing, where I think this is much more of its own thing. I Casting, mean, you know, yeah. and character is just through the roof with what it's uh, pulled together. Yeah, I'd agree. I'm not looking forward to that mini-series they're talking about, about the making of The Godfather. Like, uh, I've got a biography of Francis Ford Coppola upstairs. I'll, I'll reread that. I'll just watch Apocalypse Now again. It's been a while. Yeah, I think I will only watch it if it includes a scene of a thing that apparently happened in real life, which was when David Lynch was working on his unmade film Bonnie Rocket. Francis Ford Coppola would have Lynch come round to his house and read him the script as like a bedtime story. <laughs> That's very in character for Lynch, isn't it? I want David Lynch to read me bedtime stories now. You don't. He's seen his normal stories. What are his bedtime stories going to be like? <laughs> he's, he's just got that soothing fog on voice. 
and then Bob comes in and then eats everybody. <laughs> that's how he ends all of his stories. Yes. That's the show I'm looking forward to do, by the way, when we roll around on this. When David Lynch pops up, that'll be a fantastic episode. I'm really looking forward to that one. Oh, boy, yeah. The episode of Cinema Eclectica where you reviewed Mulholland Drive is still one of my absolute favourite episodes, just because I was mean enough to start it off by going, anyway, Rob, do us a plot synopsis. <laughs> some stuff happens as a club and there's something behind a diner that's just creepy as all hell as <laughs> much as I can remember someone jumps out and says boo at one point yes and the whole scene has been about preparing you for the fact that they will jump out and say boo and when it happens it still makes you jump a mile how does that yeah. work he is a magician he really is but Anyhow, yes. Craig Brewer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Craig, we didn't mean to go off on David Lynch on your show. but He he is a, a really talented director who's got a, a voice in the mainstream space, which nobody else really has. Um, mm. He calls back for me, especially with My Name is Dolomite, to a sort of mainstream movie, which has been forgotten because now mainstream movies are all about uh, sort of worthiness. Mm. And sort of emotional truths and they forget that these things have well can be entertaining too it's all about sort of emotional drama and, and this sort of thing be quite heavy and, and stayed and dry whereas he Craig Brewer for me he's he seems like an entertainer at the very least I think he ha- he certainly has a knack for making movies about people achieving their dreams that do not make you want to wretch which is a rare talent indeed hmm which I hope that uh, coming to America was just sort of a contractual obligation that he had to make a certain number of films with Eddie Murphy in some contract somewhere. I'd hate to think that this all was on him because it is such a bad movie. It's such a huge step down from My Name is Dolomite. I suppose one of the things is some directors only find out what their particular skill set is by doing something that's not right. Like, to go back to David Lynch, famously, he worked out that he likes telling small-scale neighbourhood stories when he did June, which is the exact opposite, and he messed it up. So I suppose maybe doing Coming to America, I hope it has made Craig Brewer realise that his gift is working-class stories. And it doesn't matter where that working class is or, you know, when it's set or what that working class person is trying to do. But there's something about the humility of the characters he creates that is is really kind of winning. And as you say, very unusual in modern American cinema. In dreams and in flames, I have seen a single spore of your bloom carried on the winds down from this mountain through the tall trees to at last take root in another of man's hidden places. I have come from that place to find you, to put an end to your long vigil. But there are things, so many things, that man cannot know, must not see. Our dreams are... The night you came here has fallen into myth. Scholars have called it the night of a thousand suns. But I dreamed the bloom's dream, and it led me here. The journey was long, painful, but I regret only that it has taken me so very long to find you. Time has had little meaning on this mountain, but your arrival on the same dawn that the bloom withered cannot be mere coincidence. And now to the back end of the show. So, Aidan, a long-time contributor and veteran of podcast that I've been on, 
Oliver, first timer and writer for the Geek Show, and Vincent, who is returning from the 2021 Review of the Year Epic. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Uh, so, generally, hello. How are you all? We all good. Yeah, yeah good as gold. Um, okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> no, no story there. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. Plenty of plenty of story. We've all got stories. I think we're just all so polite. We're letting someone else go first. Shall I go first? By all means. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm pre- I'm uh, pretty great. Um, I've uh, just uh, this is my second podcast in as many days as yesterday. Um, recorded another episode um, of Invasion of the Poddy People. Um, this is hmm. my plug, in case that wasn't obvious. Um, Invasion of the Poddy yeah. People, a uh, genre-based podcast where we talk about horror, sci-fi, uh, crimes, um, superhero movies. Uh, <clears throat> goes out um, on uh, as part of the Snake Bite. Um, podcast uh, network. Uh, you can find us on uh, places like uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we recorded an episode yesterday talking about the MCU. And what was remarkable is that you got three movie fans talking about the MCU, and we only lasted two hours. I think that was kind of an achievement in itself. That's the entirety of the MCU as well. Yeah. I mean, we didn't discuss wow. every single oh. movie, to be fair. Oh, no. But uh, we, we, we did we our, terms. our top favourites and where we think it's going, that kind of thing. Plus, we did a round of uh, Snog, Marry, Avoid with MCU characters. That was revealing. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't do it in a podcast, where can you do it? <laughs> quite, quite. Okay. I actually, I actually haven't seen a single MCU film. That's quite an achievement. I, I know. Oh. I'm quite proud of it. No, I'm not. I'm not really proud of it. That's a joke. Um, I, I don't care like you know I'm not one of those it's not I haven't watched them for any sort of snobbish reason I just um, I was never really that into superhero films as a kid and I feel like I never really read comics either so I you know I like some of them here and there Sam Raimi ones but mm. I don't know I never really got into like Iron Man uh, or anything like that so and now yeah. they're just problem is is that if I wanted to watch any of them now I wouldn't know what the hell was going on because I, I I watched the trailer and there's about 20 people introduced and I, I don't know any of them and I don't understand any any of the, yeah. any of the backstories, and it's so confusing. Um, so it's, I, it's just you know to, to start now would be like uh, starting on series six of a particularly mythology dense series. It's just yeah, exactly. My, my friend says that the the MCU is is actually basically just TV. Like it's, yeah, they always carry on with each other. Yeah, it's just like yeah. one giant TV show they play in cinemas. Okay, so um, down to the the brass tacks of this section, and why I've asked you all here today. Um, what have you been watching? It could be new, it could be old, it can not even be movie or TV, it can be whatever you want, so who wants to to jump in first? Hmm, shall I go first? Because I've got something that I'm desperate to talk about, like, really, really badly. Um, fire away, yeah, fire away. Yeah, because I, I um, trotted off to the Tyneside Cinema the other day, like, not even trotted off, like, darted off, uh, to go see Hawkeye Tria's new film, The Worst Person in the World. Okay. Um... Because I don't think Hawkeye Tree is like a name that many of you uh, would know. He's the guy who directed Felma, like Felmer a couple years back. Incredible yeah. movie, that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great psychological horror that generally just made me feel like really uncomfortable at the very end, which I, I would thoroughly recommend. Uh, um, just on that, there's a scene on the ice which you will never, ever, ever forget, and anybody mm. who's seen it knows exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah. 
it's like truly chilling stuff. Um, but this one's, uh, well, thankfully, it's uh, not as chilling because this is actually quite delightful. Um, it's it's sort of like a coming of age film for people in their like late twenties, early thirties. Um, about um, this character called Julie, who's played by Renette Rinsfer. Absolutely astonishing performance, and just basically her navigating her love life and um, takes flights of fantasy. Um, it takes, you know, various elements. There's this great moment, uh, and it, it makes me understand that Hawkeye Trio really does understand, like, cinematic grammar itself. There's a wonderful bit where um, time just stops for no reason whatsoever, and then Julie goes off to go see um, the person that you know she really does love and care about and there's just some great little touches like that that you know i really do love and it makes me wonder that it hawkeye trio might be turning into like a favorite filmmaker of mine i just think it's a grand Mm. grand piece yeah i was curious about that one i was going to mention that film as well but uh, i actually actually didn't like it very much though so (laughs) so Mm. i had the opposite well i didn't hate it but i thought i think i walked out of it just a bit underwhelmed really um I think that doesn't help by the fact that it's you watch a trailer for it and there's about ten quotes on screen, which is like best film of the year, best film you've seen. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah. And I was kind of just like, oh, all right, well, this is going to be good. And I don't know if, if anyone here is familiar with Eric Roma, but to me, it just felt like I was watching a, an Eric Roma film. But I just didn't, I wasn't as invested, or I didn't find it as fun mm. um, as those films. But it, as you said, it it was really well made and it looked good, and it, I think the soundtrack was really good as well. But I just yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just didn't really care. I guess that's sort of the problem I had with it. I didn't and, and didn't find it as funny as um, some people in the cinema. But again, I won't talk about it too much because you've already put it up. But yeah, I also saw that. Well, one. there's two perspectives there. That's, that's yeah. the beauty of yeah. movies, really. Not like the internet yeah. uh, where we all have to agree and nobody's allowed to be a dissenting opinion or a dissenting voice. Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes marketing does do my head in where it just says 10 out of 10, five-star masterpiece all over the DVD cover. It's just like, no, can we please just have like a plain, lovely artwork instead of ruining it? Yeah, I've seen that that photo of the, the bit where the time stops and she's like running. That There's like the photo they've used for like every single poster. And like mm. I got to that point and I was like, oh, there's a finally that scene. I finally <laughs> seen it. Yeah. So the same, they've used the same screenshot for like all the marketing of the film. And I was just like, there's so many nice shots in the film. I was like, why have you just picked this one all the time? Come mm. up with some better marketing. That's <laughs> not as bad as the, the Northman. If anyone's seen the posters for that, the, North, the, the new Northman posters they've brought out. It's just like, makes really makes you wonder like what is happening to advertising yeah. and films. Is, yeah. yeah, get a bit better PR team. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Clearly us. Right? They could hire all of us and we'd probably make uh, uh, have some good suggestions for the, for their marketing. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to the Northman now. But uh, yeah, Vincent, what have you to, been catching up with? Oh, sorry to sound like a bit of a stuck record, but just lately it's been a lot of Marvel stuff. Um, recently, uh, just last week, Moon Knight dropped on Disney Plus, um, and I caught and I watched the first two episodes of that in the last two days, um, which is a I, I find that to be a fascinating exploration of identities. When I saw the trailer for this, I was a bit dubious about Oscar Isaac's British accent. But yes. the show then has some changes, um, some developments that remind us just how versatile a performer Mr. Isaac is. Um, there's some, uh, He does some really great shifts and there's some fantastic physical comedy sequences and a wonderfully sarcon- sardonic kind of disembodied voice by F. Murray Abrams. 
Um, so it's uh, already, I'm only two episodes in, uh, but I am already pleasantly surprised. So I'm looking forward to more of that. Um, and in between um, new episodes of Moon Knight, I am visiting uh, Jessica Jones, um, another Marvel series on Disney Plus, previously on Netflix. Um, I'd seen the previous season. Now I'm enjoying the second season. It's all very gritty and mysterious and cynical and intriguing and has a proper kind of film noir voiceover. Um, And I also will provide a warning because the other night I went to see Morbius, (laughs) which is crap. It is wild, (laughs) it is overwrought, and it is a messy flurry of tired cliches and garish visuals. Um, There's a lot of hate these days for Jared Leto, um, which I understand. It's justified. It's justified. Yeah, indeed. To be perfectly fair, though, I don't think he's the big problem with Morbius, and I think it would be rubbish Mm. no matter who was in the lead role. Um, Have you heard the reports, though, of of his performance, how... Uh, part of Morbius's character, his he he has illness problems. I don't know the, the specifics, so he's been walking around with a wheelchair and a Zimmer frame just so he can get in the, the headspace of what it's like to well be physically disabled. Well, that is problematic. It must be said. I yes. hadn't uh, I hadn't read that. I only I, my opinion is solely based on the movie itself. Um, yeah, I also found a couple of nice things on Netflix recently. I found um, Hail Caesar. Uh, by the Coen Brothers, which uh, was out some years back, and I hadn't, and I'd been meaning to see it for years, and was delighted that it was uh, as smart and wry and uh, as goofy, but also goofy and slapstick as I thought it would be. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but um, I did make a slight mistake with that film. I had to pause part way through to do a podcast recording, and then afterwards I went back to finish it, and it works unsurprisingly best if you do it all in one go. So, and, oh, yeah. and, a lesson to myself, don't pause films. Watch them in one go. Yeah, that one was uh, quite, well, luxurious on the big screen at Hail Caesar. Yeah, because I think we did it for Eclectica one year, didn't we, yeah. Rob? Yeah, I don't think we I was did. on that episode in particular, but I do remember catching up with it and really liking it, Hail Caesar, a lot. Just out of curiosity, is that the last one they did as a duo? Because I know what either Ethan or, Ethan or Jones broke off to do, um, what was it, Macbeth? No, it wasn't Macbeth, was it? Yeah, the, no, yeah. it was Macbeth. Yeah, the yeah. tragedy, yeah. the tragedy of Macbeth, which is just by Joel. Um, uh, is it the last? Have they done anything since Hail Caesar? Sure, I'm not sure. sure. Oh, uh, Bluster Scruggs. They did that in between. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, it might be a controversial opinion. I don't know what the consensus is on that one, but the fact that I forgot it exists. <laughs> well, <laughs> there is that. Yeah, yes. um, I'm hit and miss with that one. Yeah, I've got, I've got to admit. Yeah. As far as uh, Moon Knight, though, um, it's had some backlash against that one because uh, it effectively it doesn't make any sort of well in the first one at least they haven't seen the second one yet. It makes no bones of being connected to the MCU in any way. It's its own thing, and people are kind of a little bit perplexed about that, which seems a little peculiar. Because <laughs> um, that's been a criticism for a while, hasn't it? Yes, it's, uh, well, as was mentioned earlier, can one get into the MCU now without going back to the beginning? only with great difficulty. Um, whereas, yeah, Moon Knight kind of works on its own. So far, to be fair. I mean, mm. that may change later on. Um, but who wants to have a go next, or, or should I? Because honestly, the two movies that I've seen, neither are particularly good. Um, okay. Controversial film. 
Go on, lay it on us. It's not a controversial opinion, really. Um, it's one of the latest, I don't know if it's the latest, but from um, Shudder. And I'll be honest, their originals are the movies that they require. Inconsistent, I think, would be the best way to describe them, really. But um, the latest one is called The Spine of Night. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has seen this one. No, it's this, a, yeah. it's an intriguing title. Yeah, it's a rotoscoped, very 1980s sort of heavy metal magazine um, style of fantasy directed by Philip Gillard and Morgan Gale and King, who are very apt names, honestly. Um, and it's one of these movies, I don't know if you've, any, any of you are familiar with 80s fantasy, but the story is about as horrifically dense as it could possibly be. It's all about... Uh, Everything has its fantasy. Uh, there's these plants that give you magical power and there's different dialects and there's different uh, um, prophecies and there's just an incredible amount of history and uh, narrative to swallow. And it's done in such a way where I could, couldn't take it seriously, really. Because in um, the expression of rotoscoping, I don't know whether this is true of rotoscoping in general, but... All the characters on screen talk with their lips a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because <laughs> you know it's when fine. people talk with them, their tongue. Obviously, you know I'm not explaining yeah. how people talk. That's just how it is. You're <laughs> <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but in this, it's just they enunciate everything with their lips, and I've never seen such, for want of a better word, really over animated lips. Hmm. And the dialogue is raw. It's it's really, really raw, where I think if you don't have any sort of um, connection to that sort of fantasy, this is just going to make you, you laugh, or worse, just push you away completely. Hmm. Yeah. I've seen some very strong reviews of it, though, so I'm, I think I'm an outlier on this one. What was it called again, sorry? Uh, the Spine of Night. Hmm. Oh, and also, all, like, the lead female character is naked, like, all of the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that was a hurt of acknowledgement there, I think. <laughs> yeah, you haven't sold it. Nah, nah. I mean, I'm the wrong target audience for it. I mean, uh, the famous one of this, I think it was heavy metal, wasn't it, in the 80s? Mm. Didn't Richard Linklater make a few rotoscoped films as well? Or my yeah. Thing? yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, um, yeah. Scanner Darkly is one of them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think he's, has he got a new one Waking, now? And he did Waking Life beforehand. Hmm. It's just, yeah. He has that new film out, but I don't know if it's... Uh, anim- and I think it's animated, but I thought it was more like cartoon. The uh, yeah. Spaceman, about yeah. the astronaut. But I can't say I don't know anything about yeah, it. I, I wasn't trying to sell it. it it's awful. <laughs> oh, good. Please avoid it. <laughs> it seems weird for a Shudder film. Uh, maybe they don't just really. I thought they just released horror, but... It's, it's, it most, it's mostly horror. They've got a few documentaries. Um, I mean, uh, Woodlands, Dark and Days, Bewitched. I think I've got but the name right documents. Was... They have documentaries about horror. Yeah. 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 I think so is this a horror one. film then? Or is it... um, it's violent. It's very violent. But I think that's what as close as it'll get to horror. So it's dark it's... fantasy? Yeah. It's got a, like a star-studded cast, like Patton Oswalt's in it, um, Lucy Lawless, Richard E. Grant. So... I don't know how they got them, honestly, but mm-hmm. they're in it. It's a bit strange, yeah. It's a bit strange for Shudder to pick up, actually. Now thinking about it, yeah, oh. I think it'd have been better with a more generalist audience like Netflix, to be honest. But you know, it is what it is. Um, anybody else got anything? Um, yeah, well, I've got one. 
Um, yeah, go ahead. I saw, and uh, everyone is going to, everyone here and also listening is going to tap their heads and wonder why, but I, I saw the new Michael Bay film, Ambulance. Ah, yeah, that's about uh, all right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh can't say his name. Yaya Abdul Mateen the second. Yes. The um, new Candyman, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Candyman, yeah. Morpheus, etc. etc. He's also in uh Watchmen, which is he's quite good in that. Mm. Um this the series, not the film. But um yeah, I I actually quick plug, I actually did a review this for um uh, a local Nottingham uh, newspaper left line so I, I didn't watch i didn't watch it for that i watched it and then thought they haven't got anyone to do it so i'll figure out about it but um yeah actually you know it's it's not bad um it's uh i don't know what it tells about films at the minute or michael bay as a director that i quite enjoyed sitting down and watching a a two-hour film of things blowing up an action that didn't look like absolute garbage yeah so it felt good to watch a film that was made by, you know, someone who, you know, there's there's lots of people think lots of things people can criticize Michael Bay for, but he he doesn't know how to make an explosion and it sounds good and it looks real and um yeah it was it was exciting to watch a film that just like blew stuff up and and people shot each other and that that wasn't really any reason for it, it just happened um but yeah it looked good you know I I actually quite like um that sort of trashy explosions rapid camera movements um and a lot of the a lot of the um scenes were it's on vehicles so it's car chases um which was quite interesting uh it's obviously it's not obvious but if, if, if the film is about a, a bank heist that goes wrong um it's very heat it's basically like heat was directed by and written by someone on copious amounts of cocaine like heaps of it. <laughs> and then it was, and then all the actors are also on cocaine at the same time. Um, <laughs> but you know, obviously, it's not as good as Heat because that's one of the greatest films ever made. But um, it's kind of like Heat, but instead of like all the without all the sort of like emotional sort of like hooks in the film about the characters and their lives, and it just fills it with like really overly masculine vehicle explosions. Um, but yeah, I thought it was enjoyable. You know, it's it's not bad for like a you know, a two hour action rom. There's definitely, mm. you know, look at, so as you mentioned, Morbius, you know, to sort of look at those kind of action films and it's good to see one that just, I don't know, had had some level of thought put into it. And yeah, <laughs> that's it really. It's, you know. and sometimes, yeah. And sometimes you need that to balance it in. I mean, you could watch like so many like, you know, world cinema pieces or like even like the latest Marvel film, but to throw in like, say some dumb fun every once in a while is just good for like your film watching diet. Yeah, exactly. And I think this one actually has got pretty decent, no, I'd say decent reviews, but like, I think this is probably the first Michael Bay film since maybe like Bad Boys 2 that actually has like people giving it not like one star <laughs> reviews. Mm. You know, as I think it actually seems to be getting sort of being a bit more popular. And um, so, you know, maybe he'll put out another, maybe this is a, the start of a Michael Bay renaissance that we're seeing. Maybe it's going <laughs> to, maybe in, in five years. The Bayesons, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the the Bayhem Bayesons. Um yeah, so uh, yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe in ten years' time we're all gonna be saying, Wow, I remember when Michael Bay wasn't liked and he's gonna start putting out action really good action films, but um yeah, don't think so. But um Yeah, yeah. it could yeah, happen. Good. One other thing I'll mention, um, seeing as uh, we just had mention of um 
Heat there, which happens to be my personal favourite film of all time. Um, something else oh. I saw. Yeah, something else I saw. Um, I was actually in um, the States uh, last week. In, I was on holiday in New York. Um, and the place I was staying in, the <coughs> Airbnb had um, streaming for various services, including HBO Max. And on HBO Max, I found a documentary series uh, set up by the filmmaker Ava, uh, Ava DuVernay called One Perfect Shot, in which various filmmakers talk. It's a half-hour documentary show. They'll talk about putting together um, a film of theirs leading up to One Perfect Shot. And the episode I watched was with Michael Mann talking about the bank heist sequence and his uh, leading up to a favourite shot in Heat. Um, So that was a fascinating kind of insight into the filmmaking uh, process. And I certainly hope that that series will make its way over here because I think it would be a must for any um, avid film fan. Uh, One perfect shot, uh, something to look out for. Mm. There is a Twitter account called that, but... uh... You never get the assessment of a shot ride, I don't mm-hmm. think. But as far as the concept, that TV show, that sounds that TV documentary series, that sounds really compelling. That yeah, I think I would watch that if every episode was Michael Mann mm-hmm. <laughs> just, talking <about laughs> just talking about each one of his films. Well, okay. Um, I mean, if you'll pardon the plug, I've actually written a book on Michael Mann, so you might want to check that out. <laughs> plug away, plug okay. away. Oh, wow, yeah. Send an email. He's he's top five for me. So okay. Cool. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I talk about everything. Yeah, I talk about all his films from the Jericho Mile to Public Enemies, because um, it was published in 2011, so before Black Hat came out. But uh, yes, maybe we should have a man chat sometime. He shall come out. Yeah, um, and now you've uh, willed it into existence. Yeah. He'll, pro- he'll probably end up coming on uh, soon, rather than later. <laughs> um, he's one of those directors where I couldn't just pick two films that that would define him, but. Anyway, mm. we'll, leave, we'll, we'll we'll move away from the man chat. Yeah, I think I've seen there. Uh, Thief and is, is Thief one of his? Yeah, yeah, Thief's one of his. First one. Yeah. yeah, it just shows how little I know about him. So I'm a bit of a, a manluddite. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> I've got manhunter coming out. Yeah. Uh, Eden, do you have anything else? So yeah, there, there's one more new release that I did catch, and that's uh, Red Rocket, Sean Baker's new E. Okay. Um, and if you don't know what this is, this is uh, about an uh, ex, well, ex-adult film star played by Simon Rex, who uh, goes back to his native Texas uh, to um, basically build back his life. And it's a, uh, quite a seedy film, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's um, quite grotty in that kind of way. And Simon Rex is a complete unlikable thing. But it's kind of one of those um, character studies that I found like very captivating, fascinating to watch, really. Um, mm. it's not entirely perfect I, th- I think it's a bit like about 20 minutes too long and uh, there's like some odd like decisions that I probably don't agree with like for example it just crash zooms into like various things where I just didn't think it was necessary like facial expressions or something um, yeah. out of topic and then but apart from that you know it, it, I, I, I liked it a lot I, I thought it was like very very good really has he graduated to cameras or is he still using his phone uh, it's cameras this time, but very grainy, actually, very grainy film stock he's using on this occasion. So, I, I saw, a, I saw, a, well, I, I listened to a clip someone put on Twitter the other day of a, a conversation between him and, and Paul Schrader. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was the Florida Project, or maybe he was talking about this film. I don't know which one, I can't remember which one he was talking about, but he was basically talking about like why he was he used film to film to make the film, and he was like talking about giving all these reasons 
and then he says to Paul Schrader, like, oh, you know, do you miss shooting on film? Like, and, and, and Paul Schrader literally just goes, hell no, film sucks. And that's all, that's all he says. <laughs> he just, like, shoots him down completely. Like, Sean Baker's, like, bigging up film for, like, a minute straight. And then Paul Schrader's like, no, it's crap. <laughs> I just thought it was really funny. <laughs> yeah, a little peek behind the film industry curtain, but uh, film stock is insanely expensive. You've got to have the scratch to make a movie with film these days. I think I think but I think both of his most recent I think Sean Baker only shoots him, hmm. um, which you know hmm. I don't know what that means, but yeah, <laughs> it means he's very outre. Yeah, because yeah. as Rob was saying about the iPhone thing, that was Tangerine uh, yeah. that he used iPhones on. Didn't he do that in his follow-up as well? Um, no, I think that's the one they were talking about in this um, in this podcast, Florida Project. Uh, I yeah, that was, yeah, I think that was on film. But I think that had a, I definitely had a much larger budget than Tangerine because I had Willem Dafoe. I guess they could. Yeah. Sort of, um, I, I, I mean, I don't think they. I'm not saying they paid him <laughs> all the money, but I mean, he had a. I guess he, he brought a pull to it that um, they probably thought would make his money back. Maybe it did. I, oh I don't yeah. Know it, did. yeah it was very. It was very popular. Uh, still, I still. I still haven't seen the Florida Project yet. Um, I actually, I, I, I've seen Red Rocket and I, I liked the Florida Project more for sure. Hmm. No, the Red Rocket was bad. Um, okay. Yeah. So, well, I will ask one question. Um, you, you described, um, uh, <clears throat> Oliver, you described um, Red Rocket as um, being quite kind of a sleazy. Um, I wonder if you've also seen X, um, also to do with adult filmmaking, and if that uh, if it has a similar vibe to that. I still haven't seen X yet, actually, to be honest with you. Um, but I have heard like very positive things, because I know Cliff brought that up Uh was it Cliff or... Oh, it might be, yeah, it might yeah, be it was Cliff. Yeah. It's any horror movie, it's sort of shuffled into a cinema and shuffled out of cinema very, very quickly. I've At least it. that's the experience where I where I am anyway. I've mm. seen it. Um, it wasn't the film I was going to mention, but I have seen it. Um, okay. And uh, I won't go too much into it because I, I do want to talk about something else, but um, I didn't like it. <laughs> that's right. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, I thought it was. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Ti West, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't know. Everyone seems to really love him. I didn't like. Um, was it the house? The house of the devil built. The house <laughs> of the devil. Well, I don't know. I yeah. thought that one was pretty boring, mm. which is a, a, a seemingly unpopular opinion. So, um, what do I? I, I I've not seen any Ti West films. Not a single one. Hmm. Diverting opinions are allowed. <laughs> so, so, so that's how I'm ending that conversation. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of agreement on the internet, and if you don't agree, uh, just horrible comments across the board. <laughs> what was the other film uh, there, Oliver? Uh, right, yeah, I'm just. Uh, I I watched it last night because um, I'm currently sort of right. I'm uh, trying to write a, a bit of a piece about uh, Dennis Hopper's early directorial films, and I watched one of his films last night. Uh, it's actually probably my favorite film of all time, definitely top three. Uh, Out of the Blue, uh, re- uh, got re-released. Um, by the BFI last year, last year, uh, November time, I think. Before then, it was really hard to watch in in any quality over like 360p. Um, it's from 1980. It's um, got Linda Manns, who, if anyone's seen Days of Heaven by Terence Malick, that's oh, her yeah. only other proper oh, film right. credit. She's she's the little girl in that film. Wow. Um, she's the lead character in this film. Um, she's like a teenager who loves Elvis and punk music, and Dennis Hopper plays her alcoholic father, who's just come out of prison. Um, it's really quite a depressing film, but um, yeah, it's just it's so good. Um, I love it so much. Uh, it's uh, this the um, the he was Dennis Hopper. Um, 
I, I have so much historical knowledge about Dennis Hopper. I don't even know why, but he, he basically couldn't make a film for like 10 years because he made the last movie and, um, yeah, bankrupted his career and got exiled out of Hollywood. Um, so this was his, I had about a 10 year gap and he directed this film and he was originally just meant to star in it. Um, but then the producers fired the director and Dennis Hopper rewrote it. Um, and it, it was originally like a family drama, but it's, turns into some sort of like horrible story about it's like a coming of age film i guess is probably the easiest way to describe it but um yeah dennis Hopper plays an alcoholic so basically just playing himself as he has done for like <laughs> as he did for like 10 years of his 15 years of his career um yeah it's great it's um it's really good it's kind of like if anyone's seen like easy rider um which i guess everyone has everyone's seen that film <laughs> most people have seen that film um it's kind of it's not similar but it's you know it has a lot of musical cues and it's it's kind of like about hippies that turned into like like useless like sort of like you know like the love era people who were just like getting drunk all the time and doing smoking weed and stuff and like how they turned out and like how they all turned into how like younger people would turn to punk music instead um it's really good and um yeah it's one of the only films i think really captures like punk music properly i think lots of films try but don't really do it very well but this mm-hmm. film, it's it's such a raw film. It is, yeah. I I couldn't recommend it enough. As I said, BFI put out on Blu-ray, um, and yeah, I mean, you could probably find it. If you, <laughs> I don't think it's on any streaming websites. Oh, actually, no, I'm on the Letterbox page for now, as I just wanted to check something. It's actually on the BFI player. Um, so if you have that, mm-hmm. then it's on there. You can watch it, and hundred uh, percent recommend it. It's one of the greatest films I've made. Keep meaning to see out of blue. Always captivated me that one. Uh, I absolutely recommend it, but it has to. I watched it with my girlfriend. I don't think she was prepared for like just how it's quite bleak film. There's no spoil. I don't want you know. I don't spoil anything, but it's it's not like an easy happy watch. And I I watched Henry Portrait of a Syrica the day before. So <laughs> oh wow! Back to back miserable films. I feel like I need to take a a long bath and like watch watch American Pie or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've got. Food. I'm doing the Horror Times 52 challenge on Letterboxd and two weeks I've got penciled in is Antichrist and the other one is Cannibal Holocaust. So if that ends up doing back-to-back in two weeks' time, I'm going to be miserable. Well, that's not a bad thing. I mean, if you are miserable as a result of that, it shows you, you know, you have a soul and conscience. (laughs) If you were happy and, you know, boy, you have to watch it, then there's a concern there. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So, uh, Aidan, where can we find you uh, online? Uh, I am on Twitter at Doco and Drummer. You can also find me on Letterboxd under the username Aidan F. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much me. Uh, Vincent, where can we find you? Well, you can find me where I live, but please don't, because that would be creepy. Instead, <laughs> find me on instead find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd um, at Doctor Gain. That's D R G A I N E. Uh, where I tweet my film reviews, and you can also find my reviews on the Critical Movie Critics as well as the Geek Show. Hmm. And uh, Oliver, where can we find you? Yeah, hi. Uh, I guess mostly Letterboxd, uh, Oliver X Parker, um, and then I'm also on Twitter um, at Utilation Wave, um, and yeah, write for Geek Show, uh, a few other places, and yeah, and also for my own <laughs> Substack blog as well. So. And I was joined at the head of the show, uh, the first bit, by Graham Williamson, whose voice is a firm fixture on directors on Cut Pod. You can find him at his very own podcast, 
uh, pop screen. Search for it wherever you get your podcast from. Otherwise, he's on social media at Graham W Film. Uh, he's also on Letterbox too, and also on the main meat of the show was was Andrew Young, who you can find on Twitter at Hocus Blocus. And he has his own podcast too called Behold, where he looks at comic book movies in all of their glory. Um, but yes, I have been Rob Simpson, and that was Directors Uncut. Mm-hmm.